science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Erin Barker, and this week, because tomorrow, June 8th, is World Oceans Day, we're presenting stories about being underwater. World Oceans Day takes place every year on June 8th. If you go to worldoceansday.org, you can find out about hundreds of events all over the world, from movie screenings to beach cleanups, all kinds of stuff. So in honor of this celebration, we have two stories that capture the magic of being underwater. Our first story today is from Barbara Abernathy. It was recorded in September 2018 at The Queen in Wilmington, Delaware, at our show in honor of Blood Cancer Awareness Month. Five years ago, I was standing on the jetty in Florida, looking out at the Atlantic Ocean, and just drinking in its beauty, because that was the moment that I had to say goodbye to the ocean to go have a bone marrow transplant. And the transplant doctor had told me that for a year I wouldn't be able to get into the water because of all the treatment and it makes you immune compromised and it's, uh, it would be risky to get in the water with a compromised immune system and, and be susceptible to bacteria and just don't count on it. And he, I'm a scuba instructor. Um, I love the water. I've grown up around the water. The water is just such an essential part of me, of who I am. It's my happy place. It's my joyful place. We all have that safe, joyful place that we go to um, and that just represents who we are. So that day I got in the water and I just was like, okay, let me just hold on to every memory of how this feels, the water against my skin holding me up, just the warmth of the sun, just that moment, drinking it in. And as I turned um, to leave, I said out loud, all right, this is goodbye for now, but I'm going to be back. Don't go anywhere. Um, give me a year. And I went to um, start my bone marrow transplant journey. But my story starts back in 1996 when I was diagnosed with polycythemia vera. And Google didn't exist. The internet barely existed. It was almost impossible to get information. When I was diagnosed, the doctor said to me, your grandmother had leukemia when she was in her 70s and she died. Your father was in his 50s when he had leukemia and he died. You're in your 30s, you do the math. He said, don't plan to, to um, be here to celebrate Christmas. So I started to, I, I stopped planning my life and I stopped planning for the future and I just lived 
for now, which was, you know, it, it helped me function. There was no real MPN community. There were not people around that, you know, I could talk to, that I could go to with questions. Um, so went through, you know, years and years of different treatments. And by 2013, um, a doctor said to me, your disease has changed lanes. You now have myelofibrosis and it's transforming into acute leukemia and you need a transplant immediately. I was lucky enough that there was a donor. Um, within a month, they found um, a match and I went into transplant within two months and away from my beloved ocean. So um, in the transplant unit, um, it's so easy to lose a sense of yourself and who you are. When you go into, like, they had told me that um, once I entered those doors, I could plan on not leaving there for at least a month. I was going to be in the unit on isolation and that all I could do was walk from one end of the unit to the other, which as I got sicker and sicker and sicker, became further and further and further because they turned, um, you know, my steps every day got smaller and smaller as I got weaker and weaker. And eventually I came to know that it was about 300 baby steps from one end to the other uh, because that was all I could do. I got so sick that I began to lose that sense of who I was. Uh, I lost my hair. I felt just so alone and scared. And there came a time where I was so sick that um, I didn't know whether to pray for the strength to keep going or the courage to let go. But I thought about those kids that I work with and, and I thought, okay, this is not going to be the end of my story and I'm going to keep fighting and I'm going to get back there. So I went into the bathroom and I ran water over my hands and I thought, okay, I need to reconnect with this part of myself. And I couldn't take a shower because of the central lines and all the, the things that happen in transplant. So I was in transplant for about uh, five and a half weeks. And then when I got out, I had to be in clinic every day. It was very restrictive. And my life became defined by what I couldn't do. Um, I couldn't go into a restaurant and, and uh, eat things off the menu, and I couldn't uh, go have a salad, and I couldn't have a sub, and I couldn't, uh, it's just hard to remember all the things I couldn't do, but one of the big things was not going into the ocean. But uh, the day came that the doctor said to me, you know, like, you're doing pretty well, you can uh, go do something you know, go a little bit further afield. You can get more than five miles away from the hospital. So I had my friend drive me to the closest beach and I could only be in the sun for five minutes. And I got out and immediately I could, I could just smell the sea air and hear the birds and know that I was, I was back there, that... The ocean was there, it was waiting for me. I still couldn't get in, but like for five minutes, the sun was on my face and I felt like me again. 
I got back to um, West Palm, life goes on, you get back to work, things, you know, you, you, you try to find a sense of yourself again. Um, but I still couldn't go in the ocean. And every time I would see my transplant doctor, I would ask him, like, okay, like, is, is it now? Like, is this it? Or, or you know, no. Nope. He's like, you have to wait. He said, um, I'm trying to save your life. I said, I'm trying to live my life. So finally in January of this year, it's uh, more than four years after my transplant. And again, I said to him, uh, okay, how about scuba diving? What do you think? <laughs> he said, no. I said, well, all right, so no scuba diving. What if I go swimming with manatees? And he got really quiet. And I thought, wait, this, okay, what is happening? And there's this really long pause, and I thought, uh, I don't know if this is really bad or really good, but I'm just going to hang in there. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you can do that. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, okay, don't break the moment, because he doesn't know what he said, and that's fine. <laughs> so move on, move on, just move on. And he said, you have to know that there's gonna, you're going to have to wear a dry suit and you can't have any cuts on your body and you have to rinse off with distilled water. And you have, I was like, fine, fine, okay, sure, sure. You want me to stand on my head and, and uh, sing Happy New Year? Okay, I'll do whatever it takes. I'm, you know, I'm in. As long as I can get back into the water and that sense of myself. So I, got, I did all of those things and got ready and the day finally came, I'm on a boat, and I'm still like in this surreal state thinking, this, is, this, is this really happening? So the boat is going out to the spring, and we get there, and I slip into the water, and it <laughs> It was such an emotional moment for me because it was like coming home, but to a home that I didn't think I would ever get to come back to. And I realized in that moment that there had been the part of me that had held hope that I would one day get back to the person and place that I was and that I loved, and then there was the other part of me that thought it would never happen, that feared that it was gone forever. And those two parts came together in that moment. And it was so magical. And I think even the manatees realized that because this, um, this baby manatee swam right up to me and put his forehead against mine. And I thought, Thank you, God. I got back on the boat, and that's when I realized that it wasn't my moment, that it belonged to everybody who was there that day. There was this sort of um, sacred silence. There was a hush on everybody who was there, it, and I think they realized how momentous this moment was for me and that 
that they felt honored to be able to bear witness to that moment. And it was a moment of shared humanity, of people just coming together to bear witness to someone who had gone through some struggles, some hard times, walked through some darkness, and had gotten to find light at the end of the tunnel. So for me, what I learned was that even in brokenness, we can find wholeness. And that joy may look different than we think that it's going to, but that um, hope has to live in all of us. And that uh, hope may look different than we planned but that it's always there and it's waiting for us. Thank you. That was Barbara Abernathy. Barbara is the president and CEO of the Pediatric Oncology Support Team, a nonprofit helping children and their families cope with the devastating effects of cancer. She has a PhD in counselor education and leadership from Florida Atlantic University, among other degrees, and is adjunct faculty at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and FAU. Last month, she was awarded the Giraffe Award for women who stick their neck out for others from the Women's Chamber of Commerce of Palm Beach County. She also won the 2017 Heroes in Medicine Award presented by the Palm Beach Medical Society and the 2018 MPN Heroes Award given by the American Society of Hematology in December. Okay, friends, uh, before we continue with this episode, I have an update for you on the cat situation. If you recall, on last week's episode, I shared with all of you that some of our cat-loving listeners were uh, displeased (laughs) by our Joy of Cats episode that we released on April 26th because they felt it painted cats in a negative light. I reflected on this and realized that though Story Collider is certainly not anti-cat, I wasn't sure if we had ever been pitched any pro-cat stories before. And so last week, I invited all of you to send me your pro-cat stories so we can restore balance to the force. I'm happy to say that many of you accepted this challenge and sent me your stories, and I'm going to share a few of my favorites with you now. So I'll start with this one from Chase. Chase writes, Quick and simple cat praise. My cat used to tap my face while I was sleeping to wake me up. My wife watched him do it one night and realized I hadn't been breathing. Long story short, my cat diagnosed my sleep apnea. P.S. I love the cat episode. The only reason my cat tried to keep me alive is because I'm the only one who changes his litter. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you, Chase. Uh, Here's one from a listener named Aubrey. She says, My cat, Bucky, is a 13-pound, 2-year-old Russian blue. He hates going outside, is suspicious of the dogs, attacks our other cat seemingly at random, loves to pee behind the couch, is most active at 3 a.m. when he wants to be held and adored by all of us, and, as evidenced below, doesn't want anyone else in his selfies. Aubrey here attached a couple of photos of her cats that I wish I could share with all of you through your headphones right now because they are adorable. She continues, Bucky is not a hero cat. (laughs) One time I cried in front of him and his eyes just got really wide and stared at me. (laughs) To his credit, he didn't run away or attack me, but he's no dog. 
However, Bucky's sister actually saved him. She's a small gray tabby named Puff. She's the calm, cool, collected one. One day, when they were both little kittens, Bucky ran out of the house and we couldn't find him for 24 hours. I was really distraught because I knew he wouldn't come to anyone but me and wouldn't be able to fight any animal who came out at night. I live near the woods with lots of coyotes from neighbors. About 36 hours into our search, Puff, who never meows, started meowing, sitting in the front window. I ignored it at first, but she kept doing it, and it was really unusual for her. I went over and asked her what was up, then looked out in the window to see Bucky in the yard. She had seen him and refused to move until we got him back inside. She saved her brother, who now attacks her daily, because cats are also evil. It cannot be denied. Thanks for your excellent episode. Cats are evil and good, but they're cute, so we love them anyway. Thank you, Aubrey. Uh, Puff, you are indeed a hero cat, and we at Story Collider fully acknowledge your heroism, and we salute you. One more from Anne in California. This is her story. Miss Mally reaches out and touches my arm. One light pat, then right after, another. It's the touch that someone gives when trying to sue the baby. There, there. It will be okay. I stare, kind of in shock that that just happened. This used to make my boyfriend and I laugh so hard because the one reaching out to give the there, there touch was my tabby cat. Miss Mally Cat seemed to frequently deliver it when we were sitting on the couch talking about what frustration had befallen us at work that day or why the world was fucked up or when the internet went down and we couldn't binge watch a show. It's no secret that pets comfort us. There is research that demonstrates that cat ownership can reduce your stress level and blood pressure, which may reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. We have a mammalian instinct that makes us crave soft touch when we are upset, so no wonder petting Mally made me feel good. And then there is that purr. The vibration of a purr is suggested to help heal bones and ligaments, calm labored breathing, and improve quality of sleep. So basically, my companion animal is trained in the healing arts. She knows what she is talking, uh, mewing about when she pats me to say they're there. Why wouldn't she know when we could use a little soothing? And I feel like I should add that at this point in the story, Anne has literally attached citations to this section. So I can read these papers about our instincts for tactile sensations and the healing power of cat purrs, And I deeply respect her commitment to facts. Okay, I'll continue. The boyfriend who would laugh with me about her comforting there, there, well, he broke my heart. He moved out of the small apartment he shared with Miss Mally and me, and I howled. I keened and I wept and I trembled and shook. In the weeks and months that followed, I was routinely crying myself to sleep and waking myself up sobbing. And right there was Miss Mally. Instead of sleeping anywhere else, on that now-too-big bed, she was sleeping right next to my head. Sometimes I swear it was practically nose-to-nose right where her fur was within reach of my fingers, if I could manage in my sorrow just to relax my fists before I collapsed back to sleep again, right where her paws could reach out and tap me, there, there, the most important little touch in the whole entire world. All right, all right, you've made me tear up about cats. <laughs> I surrender. Uh, I should say, though, at, at the end of Anne's email, she adds... Love cats. Enjoyed the cat story episode. Cats are gross. Dogs are gross. People are gross. But we are also all lovable. I feel like that is so wise, don't you? We are all gross and we are all lovable. Thank you, Anne. 
And thanks so much to everybody who wrote in. Your support means so much to us, and we appreciate so much that you shared your stories with us. I am fully convinced now that pro-cat stories exist. <laughs> you have a convert. All right, with all of that said, our next story today is from Conrad Hewen. It was recorded in November 2018 at Caveat in New York City. The show was made possible by the Tiffany & Co. Foundation, which seeks to preserve the world's most treasured landscapes and seascapes. The theme that night was Urban Oceans. I'm kneeling on a coral. I'm literally on my hands and knees, alone underwater on top of a giant coral colony. I'm surrounded by my equipment, but nothing is happening. Everything's quiet. Justin's up on the boat, and I'm down in the lagoon trying to figure out what's going to happen next. I study climate change. I'm a paleoclimatologist. And I was leading an expedition to Micronesia to study the West Pacific Warm Pool. The Warm Pool is a giant blob of hot water. <clears throat> the trade winds blow into the western equatorial Pacific. And all that heat eventually has to flow to the poles. And so it drives a lot of the ocean and atmospheric circulation around the world. And I've always pictured it as a beating heart. It's, it's fluctuating with the seasons, and it is driving circulation uh, out into the far reaches of the world. And understanding how it's changed in the past, whether or not it has predictable beats, uh, rhythms of its own, it will tell us about, potentially, if we know how it's behaved in the past, then we know how it may respond to human-induced climate change in the future. And to study past climate, I use drill cores from coral colonies. And corals look like brightly colored fuzzy rocks or maybe branching trees, but they're actually colonies of millions of tiny polyps in a thin skin over a limestone skeleton that they have secreted uh, continuously as they grow. And as these corals grow, they, uh, they, they deposit density bands that are just like tree rings. And so when we take a core, we can count those layers back through time and determine how old they are. And then we do chemistry on the limestone, and that can tell us about past temperature and past salinity and river runoff and lots of different things. And I know that we are not supposed to touch corals. And if you do touch corals, especially in the same place day after day, then yes, you can do damage and you can kill those polyps on the surface. But we don't spend a lot of time on the coral. And we do take a core and those polyps, unfortunate enough to be living right in the circle that we take home, will we'll, we'll find their maker. But we do plug the holes that we drill with cement corks, cement plugs, and the corals will grow back over those, those, those plugs uh, four inches across in, in a year and a half. Those scars will be healed completely, and you'd never know that we were there. <laughs> so in this case, um, we were, because of the logistics, this trip to Micronesia, we weren't able to make it to the most important site until the very end of the trip. Kapinga Morangi. I love, I love saying that. Kapinga Morangi Atoll. Kapinga Morangi is the southernmost atoll in Micronesia, and it's closest to the center of the warm pool. And that was our target site. And we had gotten some good cores from other sites before this, but none of them were that large. Um, in some cases, there were not big colonies that we could find. Uh, in some cases, the colonies had been deeply undercut on the sides, or they had dead patches on top. 
or they had crevices and cavities inside from burrowing worms and clams. There's a lot of things that can sort of mess with what would be a perfect coral record. And so I was really, really nervous about getting a... And, and we needed a record from Kapinga Morangi. It was key to the scientific mission of the, of the whole expedition. And I was really nervous about whether we were going to find something. We only had two days. And finding colonies is actually one of the hardest parts of all of this work. Um, I can, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at psyching out where corals, how they think. And I can, I can usually find the patch of giant corals in a given area, but it can take me days. And so we always, if it's possible, we always invoke the help of the local fishermen. They know the reefs like the back of their hands. And we've, and, 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 and many times I've had individuals point and say, the largest colony on the island or in the country is right there. And, and it is. And we motored over it in order to come to the village and talk to them. So, so that's always a huge help. And in, and in Micronesia, every single island that we came to was we would talk to, I would go and meet with the elders and meet with the chief and ask for permission to study their coral reefs. And they were incredibly helpful. They were, they were open and friendly and they were excited that we were working on the corals. They wanted the coral reefs to be studied. They were incredibly sophisticated in their knowledge. These are, these are islands without metal or concrete in many cases. Um, and, they, and they knew about climate change and they knew that sea levels were rising and they had been observing erosion on their own islands. So, so that was a big deal. And um, <clears throat> at Kapinga Morangi, uh, the son of the chief took us out and we went out in the lagoon and he took us to where he knew the large corals were. And there were uh, many. It was a beautiful, a beautiful garden of, of, of large coral colonies. And one in particular was just beautiful. It was 20 feet tall, shaped like a gumdrop, no cavities, no burrows, very, very smooth, perfect shape with a flat top. And I was ecstatic. I, I thought, we're in business. This is it. Because we found the colony that we need, and we're going to succeed. We're going to get what we want. I'm going to get what I want. Um, and now, don't get me wrong. Taking a coral core is difficult. It's hard work. The drill rig is this big steel beast like a jackhammer and we take the cores in sections and so there's a lot of work and it's heavy and when you're far down when you're 10 15 feet down the hole you need you need to be using your senses if the core breaks and starts to crumble into rubble that'll kill the hole you won't be able to go any farther so it's very intense and and when I'm in the middle of it and especially down deep doing this dentistry with steel bars like rebar it's, it's crazy i'm so focused i have i lose track of what's around me and i've had colleagues ask me did you see that manta ray that was floating over you and i had no idea and so that so that does happen but in this case this core we started working with it we started drilling and it was behaving beautifully it was not brittle nothing was breaking and we after a very after a while we were pretty far down and and everything was going smoothly and 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 I thought again you know we're really we're really going to get it this is this is happening and I couldn't have been happier and then the drill stopped working and this happens 
all the time. The drill turns off, and usually it's something very short. And I stay in the water, and my research assistant, Justin, goes up on the boat, and he might change the fuel, he might make a short adjustment, and then bubbles start coming out the end of the drill again, and I'll be back drilling before he can even come back down into the water. But I wait. So in this case, I stay down, in the, I stay down on the coral, and Justin goes up on the boat, but time drags on, and the bubbles don't come back on. And I start to realize slowly that this is going to be one of those bigger problems, which wouldn't be the end of the world except that we have two days. And so we can't afford this kind of a delay. So I start to get this creeping dread. My chest turns cold and I, I want to throw up, which is not fun underwater. <laughs> so here I am. I'm sitting on the coral underwater waiting for news from above, which isn't coming, and time is dragging on. And possibly I'm, I'm underwater, I'm breathing slowly, and can't hear anything, so I start to enter a meditative state. And, I start, and, and, I can, and I'm thinking about where I am, of course, and, I'm, and I can picture the earth, and I can picture the warm pool rising, expanding and contracting and, and changing size, and, and I, can, and I can see the beating heart of the earth and the warm pool, and I can picture Kapinga Morangi in the middle of that, right at the center of it. And I can picture the lagoon at the heart of Kapinga Morangi with this coral right at the center, which is recording everything. It's, it's, it's aware of and watching and writing down everything that happens in its skeleton. And then things start to get weird. The coral that I'm sitting on looks like a heart. It looks like a heart. And I've got both of my hands on it, thinking about the heart of the earth. And I start to feel like I'm holding the earth's heart in my hands. I'm holding Mother Earth's heart. And she's holding me. I'm surrounded in this warm embrace of Mother Earth. And it is completely overwhelming. It is real. I'm in the presence of something much, much, much larger than myself. And it's not just a moment, it's going on and on. And I realize how incredibly lucky I am to be where I am, to have had the opportunity to come to this place and see these, these lush coral reefs and to meet with these people, uh, sometimes 150 people on an island, who live a life that is so different from mine. And how incredibly important and, and, and special this opportunity was to be in this place. I don't know how long I sat there. At some point, I came to my senses and remembered that I'm underwater and I'm breathing from a scuba tank. And, and so I slowly come back up to the surface. And I'm not worried about the drill anymore. I am very thankful for what we've already gotten from the other cores that we've gotten, and it's not about the cores. I'm grateful for the experience that we've had. And maybe, and I'm, and I'm, I'm no longer worried about what's going to happen. I am willing to accept whatever we're given. And maybe it's because of that, I don't know, but of course, everything worked out. We fixed the drill and went back the next morning and were able to take a core right to the bottom of the largest colony and brought back an incredible record that extended 400 years and has given us a lot of great information. But 
that coral core was not the most important thing or the most valuable thing that I brought home from that trip. Not even close. That was Conrad Hewen. Conrad is a senior scientist in the Department of Marine Chemistry and Geochemistry at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He was awarded a NASA Graduate Research Fellowship, leading to his Ph.D. at the University of Colorado Boulder. Conrad was also awarded a NOAA Climate and Global Change Postdoctoral Fellowship, which he pursued at Harvard University before joining the scientific faculty at Woods Hole. As a geochemist and paleoclimatologist, his investigations have taken him all over the world, including recent expeditions to Micronesia, the Red Sea, the Maldives, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, and Cuba. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, Paula Croxon, Nissa Greenberg, and Tracy Rowland. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to The Queen and Caveat for hosting these shows and to the ocean. It's your day, buddy. Go ahead and celebrate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>